What's going on, everyone? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Stan Weasel Real Estate Group. Whether you're looking for a homegrown indigenous beech tree with good bark and a skipping stone hearth, or even a tiny dark crawl space in the local sewer system, Stan Weasel has got you covered. Great places, great people, great prices. It's the trifecta. They would like uh, me to let you know, let's see, let's see here, that they are not responsible for Kylie the Opossum secretly living in your home for many months undetected, nor property damage caused by Bogus Bunsen Bean, three of the meanest, nastiest farmers in the history of the valley. Consider yourself warned. Who who would still buy? Who would commit to that? It doesn't matter. Stan Weasel Real Estate. Because now is the time to buy. So, Tanner, you're the subject of your of your email this morning with the Zoom link was this all what is it? I believe it was it it has all been leading to this. <laughs> As I said to you the other day when we were doing our test to try to iron out some audio issues. Uh yeah, because I think Dahl is up there for top of big like maybe my one of my favorite writers, obviously is a children's author, most uh, most known for. And Wes Anderson, I think, is probably my favorite filmmaker. I wouldn't say the best filmmaker, but my favorite filmmaker. Your two guys come together. Two guys coming together. I have two Wes Anderson inspired tattoos on my body. That's that's how hard I'm going. How many do you have? I, I've got a goose egg currently. Oh, okay. Well, let's defer to my judgment then. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I do think I don't know where you're at with Dahl, uh, Road Dahl, and his work. We can talk about the complex. We can air the Road Dahl back <laughs> right at the beginning, just to just just because I think it's necessary. But where where do these two men rank for you in terms of your 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 literary development and your cinematic taste and influence? Well, Road Dahl, yeah, I definitely don't have the same um, connection that you do. But I think really, I, I cinematically certainly. James and the Giant Peach was a movie that both I'm not sure if I read the book I must have maybe after the movie because I watched the movie often as a kid and it was one of those early things that both scares and upsets you and excites you if that makes sense you know kind of kind of gets the juices flowing and also freaks you the fuck out that's certainly how I felt about that movie. Now, maybe that's also <laughs> because of like the Henry Selick style of stop motion animation. Um, yeah, so I definitely read that book at some point. I don't know that I had read any of the other books until I read Fantastic Mr. Fox for this podcast. I'm Sorry sure- to cut you off, Tanner. I love everything you're saying. I'm hearing a little bit of crackle. Do you want to just turn down the monitor and then maybe that's part of it? Because I didn't hear it before you did that. Any crackle? A little bit. Let me turn it off. Um, maybe turn down the gain, even though it's up at one. See what it sounds like. Crackle, crackle, anything? No, it sounds good. Okay, okay that was so all you're... monitor. Okay, cool. So um, what you were saying, basically, just to repeat back to you, is that, yeah, you were, uh, you, you cinematically, you didn't really have a connection with, with any of the books. You assume maybe you read James and the Giant Peach. Uh, but it had an influence on you watching it because it's something I think that's a really perceptive take is that it scares and excites you. 
mean, and that, that go, ahead. go ahead i would say that certainly like anecdotally seems to be a raw doll thing even with the movies like i hear that a lot certainly about the original uh the witches movie and probably even willy wonka um that kids have that kind of both sides experience with it I think, no, I think that's what makes his work stand out as a kid is it doesn't feel like somebody who's condescending to you. It feels like it's written from like, it feels like it's written by a kid. It's, right, it's great. right, right. It like by a kid for kids, but it really has a very, um, a very pessimistic view on adulthood and adults in general. And, and I don't think he coddles, like the fact of the matter is the kids are going to find out one way or another that it's a scary world out there. And I feel like he it introduces him young. Every every book has a pretty pretty major kind of violence, some violence or scariness to it. Um, that I think is a way that I think kids. I think it excites when I was. I don't think I've heard actually from librarians. I talked to a librarian a couple of years ago for kids who said they don't read them anymore, which is a bummer. That she was really trying to push the witches on them during Halloween. These elementary school kids, and they were. She was like. This book is actually scary. You should read it. And then they're like, they're all about graphic novels and stuff. So I'm curious to see if he'll have staying power. I wonder how it is in Britain, obviously. But um, I think that's the reason that his work was so beloved by children um, was you didn't feel like it was somebody who was catering to what a child might like. It was kind of like someone who wasn't sugarcoating it. And and uh, it just seemed it just seemed to really uh be exciting at the same time like it felt like magic was real but also evil is real so watch the f out (laughs) great way of putting it yeah what was your i mean you have several connections to many of his works but what was your way in so my way in i honestly don't remember how uh when i started when i read it because for me another thing that's crazy is that road doll died before i was born right and i'm so like a year before i was born or two years i think it was in 1990 I was born in 92. Um, I just grew up on it. I think maybe my parents were just aware of it, but I had the first, I had the BFG. I had fantastic Mr. Fox. I had Matilda. I had the road doll treasury, a big thick book in my house. And I, I assume my parents bought that after I took to the other stuff. But for me, the, 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 the two books that I come back to, um, were, were always throughout my youth were the BFG and fantastic Mr. Fox. And I think the BFG is probably my favorite, like Head and Shoulders, my favorite of of his work. I don't know if it's because of how I came to it or whatever, but I just loved that book so much so that when I uh, wrote and produced and recorded a rap album in 2018, there was a song called Golden Fizz Wizard, um, which is (laughs) uh, what the BFG refers to, like really pleasant dreams. Um, And I sampled some of the audio book and distorted it enough so I did not get a copyright claim. Pretty awesome. Um, but here, let's just let's just clear the air on Road Dog because we talked to, we were texting a little bit about this. So, and I think this is something that, like, unfortunately, you have to put an asterisk on everything with him, which does make me sad. But I do think it's it's it needs to be done. The man is an anti semite. I we were talking about. I said there's a chance I'm a doll apologist, and I was really thinking about. It. I'm like, he said you have to take him at face value, right? He said he's an anti semite. Literally, he literally said that. So. I don't, you know, it's tough because he was a World War II veteran and like a literal hero. He like saved people's lives and all those things. But I don't know, whatever. It seems that some sort of um, anger towards Israel and made him really, I don't know if that was the the tipping point for him or he always had this in the background. I don't know why you would sign up to fight Hitler um, if you started out with these beliefs, but it seems like he developed them to the point where he's 
feels like he just said some really, really troubling and like indefensible things about, about Israel and, and, and Jewish people. So it's pretty, pretty messed up. I don't I can't imagine being like a Jewish reader and then like coming to that, like a kid being like all about it and then like discovering that it's fucking yeah, crazy. Your favorite author just being like, I am an anti-Semite. You yeah. could say that. <laughs> yeah, like to not even have any nuance to it. To be like, no, I am. Like, I hate. I'm anti-Israel. I'm an anti-Semite. Hitler didn't start picking on these people for no reason. <laughs> it's just like, what Jesus the fuck Christ. are you doing? It makes me so sad because I love his work. Well, consider the air cleared. Compl- complicated guy. I mean, like you said. I mean, you have here in the notes. Like he had such a fascinating life. You know a real 20th century figure. Um, yeah. Real crazy. quick, Tanner, I am getting a little thump. I don't know. We'll just have to keep going. I don't know what it is. Do you hear it or no? No, I don't. Okay. I think it might just be crackle. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We're, we're, this is all a work in progress. We're all, it's all good. It's all good. Okay. So we've cleared the air about Rodal being a self-confessed anti-Semite. And I, I don't really, we don't need to spend much time defending. I will defend his work to criticism. I think it's really odd that some of the, it's so tough. You don't know when you read critiques online, it's like, is this a popular sentiment or is this just one person's opinion that made like the Wikipedia page? But as far as his work goes, I am, you know, obviously a big fan. The BFG and Fantastic Mr. Fox. I do like pretty much all the others, but those are the two that I have like a soft special spot for. Um, I also, have you ever read um, or heard of uh, Tales from the Beyond? No, great title. It is a great title. Have you ever, did you watch any of the, um, I think it's all free on Amazon Prime, but the Alfred Hitch, Hitchcock Presents stuff. I've seen some random episodes of that. I think mostly and, uh, in film school. Okay, so you so you did see some of that. Oh yeah, it's funny because they have an episode, I think they have a bunch of episodes that are based off of all the stories from Tales from the Beyond. Oh, They're that's so cool. Each story is like, has a twist. It's like a twist in the tale. And so everyone has a twist and um, they're all pretty awesome. And it showed that he could really write for different audiences. But the one that seems to have the most talked about is lamb to the slaughter it's basically about a man who admits to his young to his wife that he's having an affair he never you never he never says it so you just have to make that assumption but it says everything but that he's having an affair and then she listens and then she she kills him with uh, a frozen leg of lamb and then feeds it to the feeds it to the cops who come to investigate because he was also a police officer her husband wait wait Um, she feeds the lamb or his body she feeds the lamb. Okay, okay. So she's disposing of the murder weapon and like gets away with it. And then she starts to like laugh at the end and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> well, the thing that I think is so funny about it is that, so when I, wa- I actually watched the, I watched that with my students and it's funny cause they, oh, it's a quick story and they open it up for like a full TV episode. And it's really funny cause the, the cop in the, the, one of the police officers who arrives at the scene basically is, doesn't have any dialogue in the, in the short story. But in the the TV episode, he's so he's played by the, such an over the top actor, like doing such cliche cop stuff. Like someone he comes in and is instantly like fingerprints. We need to look for fingerprints, and it's just it's wild. But it, and my students were like laughing at this guy. It was it was pretty funny. It was like tough to digest as like <laughs> serious drama or a mystery or whatever. But anyway, but the thing that I think is funny. So he's so Doll introduces kind of all of these these episodes that are about his work and one of them is just so funny because tonally it's just pretty crazy so he's he thought of this story because he was at dinner with ian fleming the author of james bond the james bond books because he's they were friends and i think collaborated on a screenplay or two 
And some guy brought, some waitress brought a leg of lamb and it was really dry. And basically Ian Fleming was like, <laughs> was like, I forget what he said, but he said something that's just like so, so casually like violent. Like she deserves to be like hitting the head with this <laughs> or something. And Dahl was like, so that was the impetus for this story. Like, oh, <laughs> I thought you, I thought you were going to say that Ian Fleming was referencing it. That's even funnier. No, yeah, he just says it like he says like she needs to be hit over the head with this <laughs> piece of lamb, and the doll was like, so that was what I wrote it, like an attack on this waitress. <laughs> I do. There is something about that kind of yeah mid-century English hero writer figure that's like very romantic. Uh, even though this one turned out to be an anti-Semite, but it's like man, would be cool to have been one of those dudes. Yeah, I mean, he had a he had a, a fascinating life. So maybe here's what I'm thinking, Tanner. I can sermonize about his life, and then you can, if you have any questions, I want you to pop in, and then we'll just do that kind of stuff, and then we'll go into Fantastic Mr. Fox. How does that sound? I love it. Okay, so I wrote a lot. I actually consider myself um, somewhat of a doll expert. I think more than the average person. I don't know why, but him and Wes Anderson, I feel like I was like, I have so much to say. I don't know how I'm going to continue. <laughs> it's funny. Cause I told you I read a book in preparation for it. And this was the book. Beautiful. <laughs> it's like a little kid's D book. D for doll. D for doll. And it's all illustrated by Quentin Blake who did all, you know, his illustrations. But anyway, I knew a lot of this, um, from, I listened to an episode on the history of literature podcast about Roe Dahl. And I learned a lot of this as well. But basically, so he was born to Norwegian parents in Britain. And then I believe his dad died when he was three years old and his oldest sister died. And then from there, he, uh, he was the only boy. and He went to a prep school. He went to or a boarding school. And like the kids, the boys, they were just like vicious. And I think he wrote, I think that was the primary focus of his memoir called Boy. It's about like his childhood. Um, so he had like really terrible... Um, experience there with the older boys and the prefects like bullying him and beating him and apparently like they would have to act as like footrests oh like they God. would have to be footrests for these kids and these are the kids who are like in charge and put in charge because they were like the best we're like so oh, british it is very british and i feel like that that is the creating of if we're anal psychoanalyzing him like you're going to think that adults and are terrible i feel like if that's how you come to adulthood. <laughs> yeah no that makes sense <laughs> um so at age 18, his mom really wanted him to go to college, but he went off to, he really wanted to travel. So he went to Africa uh, and worked for the Shell Oil Company. And then he was in Africa for a few years. And then he enlisted in, it's called the Royal Air Force, I think the RAF, when uh, the outbreak of World War II happened. Real quick though, before we get there, it's something that he wrote in, I uh, bought, I remember we were texting about it when I got it, but I bought, um, I hadn't read this in my youth, but I when I was at Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, I got a copy of Henry Sugar, um, like the wonder story of uh, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and six more, because you had just texted me like the day before that uh, Wes Anderson's going to direct. Right, right. Um, for Netflix. Yeah. His first collab with them. And I saw that. So I saw that and I got it because I had never read it and I was curious. And in there was a list of personal, it was like some of the six more that one of them was called a lucky break. This is where I got some of this information as well. Uh, his English teacher was also a boxing coach. And he said on his report card, it said something to this effect. I don't have a word for word, but it's both in his writing and his boxing. One can predict his punches from a mile away, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, so he wasn't a stellar writer, I guess, but maybe it was just misunderstood, but he credits his love of uh, literature and writing for a teacher who would come and talk to the boys 
at an auditorium uh, on like Saturday mornings, this woman, apparently a teacher would come and uh, really uh, talk about these books and got them all really, really excited about it, which is a beautiful image. So from there, he, he would join the uh, RAF. He's a fighter pilot. He's six foot six. He's crammed into, he's crammed into a, a real quick a plane. Do you think yeah. he could throw down? Throw down? Like, what do you mean? Like dunk a basketball? That's a great question. I feel like he could touch rim, but maybe couldn't get <laughs> up there. And he didn't know he didn't have the finger strength to to yeah, pump he, the ball. Exactly. He, everyone probably would like pass him the ball. It's probably like Stanley in the office when Michael <laughs> throws him the ball, and he's like, <laughs> "Yeah, are you gotta be kidding me?" Like, I feel like it's probably like that. Yeah, I don't think you could throw down. I thought you were talking for a second about sex. Sexual? Was- yeah, I realized after I said it that it has several meanings. Well, we should go into that very quickly because apparently he was like a total like <laughs> scallion and like he was could kind of, throw like, down yeah. he could throw down and one of his daughter i think this is so funny i think one of his daughters who i actually want to talk about i think it might have been tessa but it might have been a different one of his daughters said that like he had like he exuded like a sexual energy and had tons of women and he married patricia neal a movie star and then he ends up cheating on her or whatever but then he uh apparently he was quite the ladies man which is which hell yeah <laughs> i mean a- awesome for a children's author too it's hilarious that that's like yeah he's like that's but before he was like i just think it's hilarious that his daughter was like no yeah, no, coming from his daughter to be yeah, clear it's like no no this dude this dude fucks anyway so his plane gets shot down he's apparently a very quick very good flyer his, and he doesn't really talk a ton about he didn't talk a ton about his his service uh he got his plane got shot down and it crashed and i think he broke his skull and he somehow yeah jesus Sorry, Christ. Reason. No, yeah he's just so, crazy it is crazy, and he somehow managed to get out of uh, alive of that. But then he was holed up, obviously, and then eventually discharged. And he went to Washington D.C. to, and he was a spy, which is crazy. So he called it something else. He does it. He did acknowledge it, but he called it something else. And I listened to an interview where his job really was to try to get into FDR's brain a bit and try to uh, figure out if he was interested in join if he would eventually join world war ii because winston's churchill winston churchill's one of his main missions was trying to get america in the war as soon as britain joined in the war so much so that i I read this anecdote or heard this anecdote i think on the history of literature podcast that um churchill sent a cigar to like i'm not sure what his title was i'll just say president of japan when they bombed pearl harbor because he was like you guys just lost the war because you got america involved um, like, it seems like something that like someone on the right wing of America like conjured yeah, up now, <laughs> right, right, right? Yeah, but uh, apparently it's true. So his job was to try to monitor FDR, and apparently he was it was within his job description to like sleep with women around FDR to try to get more information. He 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 assigned himself his own job description. <laughs> I'm gonna need to get in there. I'm gonna need you know we who better than. The two best looking women in Washington, D.C. They probably have all the info. Apparently, one woman, he he reported back to a supervisor, like, I can't do this. Like, this woman wants it all the time. And she's got a husband, <laughs> like, I can't do it. And and then his supervisor's like, get back in there. We need to know, which is fucking crazy. And then I read as well um, that he was accused of improper conduct at this time, but there weren't any specific allegations. So I was like, what is that's kind of a that's like, I believe it. But I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean? assault does that mean like secretly being anti-semitic i didn't know what that meant but um apparently it's out there but i don't know he, he was accused it. of just throwing down too hard <laughs> <spot>. yeah. <laughs> yeah 
he was just accused of getting laid just too much. We don't know, but apparently he was, which is, I think the height maybe helped. But the thing that was really fascinating in Lucky Break that he talks about. So um, he was introduced to CM Forrester, um, the British author. I think he wrote A Room with a View, right? Right, right. And he, which the novel was the subject of the Finer Things Club in the office. Um, if you recall, I believe that was. <laughs> I that. don't recall. Okay. Well, so he, um, yeah, so he meets Ian Forrester, and Ian Forrester wants to meet him because he wants to talk to a, a veteran, specifically a pilot, because he wants to write a story about it. And he goes to dinner, and Dahl says this in the in the lucky break. He like thinks Forrester's like boring. <laughs> like, like, and he also makes this note being like but that's a testament of a true writer they know how to like unlock kind of like the, the intrigue of humanity or what i forget what he says he says something like that when they're alone in a room right um, right so but he's like what's the like, yeah like what's the flaubert quote uh like be totally boring in your personal life so you can be depraved in your art maybe one of those situations <laughs> it sounds it sounds like yeah that sounds spot on but anyway so doll in the middle of this meeting is like i'm i can't be helpful like i don't really know can i just write it down and send it to you and uh ian forrester is like sure i guess so he goes home and he says he wrote he wrote the whole thing in like one burst over the course of a few hours and called it a piece of cake and send it sent it to ian forrester who like I don't don't think replied initially, and then a, a replied being like, "This is incredible. Uh, are you aware that you're a writer? Like, do you know that you're a writer?" <laughs> and he sent it to his he he sent it to his agent who was getting it published in the Saturday Evening Post, and gives him so. Re- and then in the letter is nine hundred dollars. So he got a thousand dollars for the story plus a ten percent agent's fee that it's the agent took, which is just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, just, right just took the it off the top. Yeah, just took it off the top. Sent it to him. And then, like, from there, it was kind of game on. Uh, he wrote, like, The Gremlins and Walt Disney, another famous anti-Semite, loved it uh, and had him. They were trying to adapt into a movie. It didn't really go anywhere because I guess they were polling that no one really cared about, uh, like, the Royal Air Force in America. And then so that didn't go anywhere, but it was basically about, yeah. And now, obviously, it became a huge movie. But I, it was, I think it was – I don't know if it's existed in folklore, but basically, Dahl is credited with, with – with coming up with these little creatures that cause havoc in planes. And I think it then became obviously the gremlins and gremlins too, also, which still hold up. Maybe not actually in the, in the, actually, I think it's the gremlin. I think gremlins too really holds up. Cause there's like a Trump parody and it's super meta and self-aware and like the film stops all these things. Yeah. I think probably how they get the gremlins is pretty racist towards Asians, but that's, but. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about that entirely. <laughs> but, but anyway, so doll comes up with gremlins and then from there, he's like writing, he's writing for adults. And then he slowly, I think, starts writing for kids. But he always, he started like, it feels like as a pro because he was already pretty good and then got paid. And that was kind of the, I think the green light you needed in that those days. It's like, it was just still maybe the case that once you get paid, well, you just, the hardest part is to do it once. And then from there, you can get it. You can kind of get in. No, definitely. From then on, you're just snapping necks and cashing checks. <laughs> exactly. But the thing that struck me so much, and actually I really appreciated reading this. It was just so goofy, but I was like, holy God, like this guy had so many interests and curiosities and like had his hand in so many different pots. And the thing that was, so his daughter died, I believe of measles at age seven, which is horrible. And apparently Patricia's Neal's autobiography memoir, she said that doll like pretty much went crazy. Like just like was so upset by it, which makes total sense. And he never really talked about her. And then I think she was buried on his prop there 
property or he, he grew a bunch of trees like and you would go there and kind of like be there. But I think it kind of haunted him his entire life. And he like never talked about it, which is, uh, you know, obviously heartbreaking <sighs> from there. Also, his son Theo's pram, like his stroller, got hit by a, a taxi cab in New York City. And apparently Dahl and some other medical professional invented a valve to because he had all this fluid in his brain. They invented a valve to drain it out. Oh, while, I saw this. I saw it in one of the Wes Anderson, either the commentary or that um, that essay I was mentioning about visiting the house. Yeah, he offhandedly like, and this is also where he invented the valve to, you know, <laughs> fix his son's brain, whatever. And I was like, what? Is this the same guy? I think that yeah, that's what's crazy is that is there were so many layers to this dude, and obviously some of them were pretty ugly, but some of them were just like fascinating because it's. He just seemed like he had such a, a vibrant, crazy life and just said it was just full of so much life and so many different interests. So then, yeah, he helps that. And then this is really interesting to me. Um, and I, I was, I'm going to pitch a movie to you. I think it's, it's, it would probably be better fictionalized, but a, a biopic would be crazy. So he has like all these kids, right? And um, they has, he has some granddaughters as well who are like supermodels now and um, all that stuff. One How of does them, that happen that just famous people, even if they're not – related to famously hot people just become models it's so i strange. think it's it is crazy i think it's because his, his their mom was a movie star and then obviously oh right right Dolph, sorry doll fucks so you know they're obviously As we know yeah but he had a daughter named tessa who he said i think this is really interesting like a few weeks before his death just imagine if one of your parents said this about you about your sister he was like she's like the most troubled but she's also the most interesting <laughs> like imagine if your mom said that your sister was more interesting than you she might be right i mean i don't know it's our maybe yeah let's see my brother might be more interesting than me he's certainly <laughs> more entertaining to talk about um but so this is this is my so she so tessa she is pretty was pretty messed up by the end of her uh childhood because she was she gave her older sister measles by accident she brought it home from school and that's what killed her and then she was there when theo got hit like it was the nanny tessa and theo as they were crossing the street um so she had a lot of guilt about both of these things but she comes out into the world and she's like the it girl for a while she's very good looking she's dating all these older famous men including peter sellers um but she has all these addiction issues i think she was diagnosed with bipolar and here's what i think is and apparently she was arrested a couple years ago for refusing to pay a hotel bill um but i think this is an interesting movie so uh, apparently she got paid out at, in like the early 2000s a lot of money they all did when charlie when they remade charlie and the chocolate factory <laughs> so i was like a, a biopic about tessa doll uh getting paid out for having having all this money for charlie and the chocolate factory and being like very troubled but connected to this legacy i just thought would be could be a fascinating no movie. fascinating character yeah so I don't know this. That's kind of what I have on doll. The last thing I want to say, cause I just found this and we can, he will be bringing him back up as we talk about fantastic Mr. Fox. But I, I sent these photos to you of his in lucky break. He has this writing advice and I think it's really actually good advice. So I just wanted to share it. Um, so this is his advice for people who want to write for, for aspiring writers. You should have a lively imagination. You should be able to write well. By that, I mean you should make a scene come to li uh, come alive in the reader's mind. Not everyone has this ability. It's a gift, and you either have it or you don't. Bam, pretty harsh, but probably true. You must have stamina. In other words, you must stick to what you are doing and never give up for hour after hour, day after day, week after week, and month after month. 
And he also said this in an interview, writing is about, isn't about inspiration, it's about perspiration. And Great I line. really love that because I really relate. You must be a perfectionist. That means you must never be satisfied with what you've written until you have written, rewritten it again and again and making it as good as you possibly can. Five is you must have a strong self-discipline. You are working alone. No one is employing you. No one is around to fire you if you don't turn up for work or to tick you off when you start slacking. Six, it helps a lot if you have a keen sense of humor. This is not essential when writing for grownups, but for children, it's vital. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you can you don't have to be funny for those adults because I hate them and I miss <laughs> when I was a kid, but I also hated when I was a kid because my sister died, my dad died, and all those prefix really mean to me. That being said, you gotta be silly. You gotta be silly out there. And lastly, you must have a degree of humility. The writer who thinks that his work is marvelous is heading for trouble. And one thing that uh, to expand on that really quick, I think I read in this D for doll book, which is really funny. Apparently he was like so irritable and insufferable to be around when he was finishing a book. Cause he was like, I can't do it. This is it. Like this book is good, but I'll never write a good one. An another good one. And he was always like miserable when he finished a book. And then the only one he liked, like right out the gate was Matilda. And that was probably good because he died two years later. Call the shot. That's straight up like phantom thread, just like being so exhausted and like, impossible by the end of something than having to work back up no for sure and i i don't know if that's the mark of a genius or just like people saying people <laughs> right. enabling being a shitty person an insecure <laughs> angry person hey what was number three again three was you must have stamina i mean Another... we know he had stamina <laughs> you know that he was good he was good for you know at least 58 minutes of solid love making Okay, so I think that's a good portrait of Dahl. Obviously, he'll come up organically, um, and I consider myself the the leading expert on Dahl in the world and this podcast. Just kidding, um, but uh, <laughs> no, I think that's fair. all. I, I think that's all I got for him at uh, at the moment. Um, how, do, how do you have any questions about the man, the myth, the legend, the anti-Semite? The no, I, I learned so much from from you. The the leads wording, the, the God damn it, the world's leading adologist. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I just wanted to introduce you to another one of our sponsors, Badger, Beaver, and Beaver Attorneys at Law. Each animal and staff isn't just a skilled lawyer; they're also a highly trained demolitions expert. So whether you need help drafting a contract to purchase your dream tree or to rain down on your enemies in a hail of fire and pine cones, Badger, Beaver, and Beaver are there for you. Listeners of the podcast are eligible for a one-time free consultation up to 90 minutes in length. Just go to their website, type in your phone number along with the code MELESMELES, which I uh, believe is Latin for badger, and uh, yeah, someone will call you right away. In summation, I just think you got to go ahead and do it, man. That's all. Now back to the podcast. So how did you come to uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, the movie? How did it start for you? Or do you Such want to start a, with Wes Anderson? Let's actually, let's start with the movie. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, you know what? It's entirely possible. Was this the first Wes Anderson movie I saw? I don't think so, but it was close. But I do, I just have a very specific. So this movie came out, <clears throat> I believe, fall 2009, which was my freshman year of college. And it came out. I think Thanksgiving weekend, and I just so distinctly met remembering several friends of mine being excited to go see it. But like Thanksgiving, you know, I went to school where I'm from. So basically, like 
the day after Thanksgiving, we just went back to our dorms from my house and everyone else is gone. And even on like a huge college campus, everything is shut down for a holiday weekend. So I remember one of my friends who had a car picking us up and we all went and saw Fantastic Mr. Fox. Loved it. But I, but I so associate that experience with coming back, all the dining halls being closed and me literally having no money and not knowing how I was going to eat. And I don't remember what happened. Um, <laughs> I, I clearly got to the next meal somehow. But I so distinctly remember that. But no, I was going to say, uh, yeah, so, th- I mean, we all loved it. But then I feel like specifically saying cluster cuss became like one of the phrases of my college experience among my kind of annoying friends and maybe even doing the whistle clicking thing. Um, <laughs> and that's so that, from something, right? You found that's from, what's that from? That's from MASH, the movie, not, not the show. That's like, like uh, El- the Elliot Altman movie. Yeah. The Altman movie, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland do like a similar thing to each other. Um, and I know Wes Anderson loves, uh, loves Altman. Um, but yeah, and and then was yeah, was it the first one I saw? Because I remember being vaguely, I always knew about Rushmore. I'd probably seen the Royal Tenenbaums or at least parts of it, but not properly. And then around this time is when I got into them all, like freshman year of college. So I went back and watched Rushmore, and then you know, uh, Life Aquatic and Darjeeling Unlimited. And then after Fantastic Mr. Fox, I was just so on board and excited. And, you know, saw everything theatrically after this. Um, But, yeah, I just think, God, it's such a good movie. And it just, for me, it, like, really, it's, like, kind of the turning point in his career where, you know, starts off so hot with Bottle Rocket and Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. And then, you know, we love uh, Life Aquatic. I don't know that we've ever really talked about Darjeeling Limited. That's a movie I've seen a million times. I know we've talked about the short that opens it. And I mm-hmm. do, I do love it, but that's the one that I get the sense that like people hate in a way that like I kind of get. Um, I don't I, think that uh, I don't know. I maybe I think people who don't like Wes Anderson probably hate it. I think Wes Anderson fans just don't. I think it's more like you can skip it. Yeah, but. yeah. Or I mean, and I think maybe it's also more that like. Which I don't know. I think there's some great dark stuff in that, but I think it's certainly when, like chronologically, when like the bloom was kind of fully off the rose with him, like mm-hmm. it was no longer novel, and you know people did the the critique that people who don't watch his movies still give that like oh it's all the same and it's all like a shoebox diorama, but um but I do think I mean Fantastic Mr. Fox is just so perfect because it's like he's taking the things that people were sick of the insane attention to detail the like hermetically sealed world and just die like fully leaning into it by making a stop motion movie where every single aspect is controlled his movies that were live action that already almost felt like stop motion and to me that really just like pushes him through to the other side for this like great second half of his career that he's been on where you know in down and then into moonrise kingdom and grand budapest hotel um which, you know, were both successes financially and critically. And, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel was nominated for like a million Oscars. And those movies are even more stylized and rigidly detailed than his first movies. And I think it just really opened it up for him in a fascinating way. That is, that's an interesting point to make because I do feel like to that point, so everything coming under his control, it feels like he's a director where he needs everything under his control. And I don't think it's because he's like uh, a megalomaniac. I think he actually has a vision and he'll, he's like, 
it's all in service of that, like the amount of work. So the thing is, if you, I'll send it to you, but there's a, there's a, there's one bad review that came out of fantastic Mr. Fox. And it was one of the first reviews, maybe the first, it was about, it was from the LA times and had like a weird, a weird title of the review. It was like fur flies on fantastic Mr. Fox. And basically the, the guy was not a Wes Anderson fan and felt like, and I think the production was, so difficult because of he was so exacting where for example the animators were all like look we have to do cgi for all this stuff for certain things because that's where the medium is at like as wes anderson really wanted to be stripped down a big reason he wanted to do stop motion was because of the rank and bass stuff and he also loved the idea of filming texture and he he was like no everything is going to be handmade and all the sets are going to be painted and apparently another thing i feel like a hallmark of when a a really good adaptation is when the filmmaker like pays respect to the the source material but makes it his own. He had all of the sets stylized around um, where Gypsy House was, where Rodal's um, lived and 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 worked, and you can just totally see it. It's like this English countryside. There's like there isn't blue, there isn't green. It's all browns and yellows and oranges and some reds, and it's like incredible to the point where he was like you just you read this bad review and someone like me and I and you as well you just respect him more you're like no you just didn't get what he was trying to do you pushed back he made you do it and then who was right (laughs) (laughs) like who was right he was right this movie is a masterpiece I'll go on I'll go on record saying I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is a masterpiece I think it's arguable that's his most fully realized film and his most effective film. And I would, I would, I would go into battle with those opinions. Yeah. And it's just like through that, like rigidity and the insane attention to detail. I don't know. It, beca- it again, it goes through to the other side and just becomes so alive. Um, that's so interesting what you were, cause he, I, I listened to the, his commentary on the Blu-ray and it's what you're saying about them, like taking from gypsy house. That's such an interesting way to fill out an adaptation of something that may be kind of, you know, not necessarily fitting a feature film length adaptation, but he just talked a lot about how he and he and Noah Baumbach went to Gypsy House and wrote there and how so many, both the look and just so many of the names and ideas were just taken from what was around that house where Dahl lived and where his estate and family were. And I don't know, that's such like a, because sure you could say, well, Dahl wasn't necessarily writing about where he lived, but to like fill it in with what we, they know was like filling his brain space. I don't know. That's a really cool way to pay homage to someone in their work. Um, and I, no, think I it, agree. It's really effective. I mean, there are so many details in the movie. Like I would never know that whatever bean annex was called that. Cause there's an annex at gypsy house or this pub. I think they said the nags head was a pub by gypsy house. Um, it's just really cool and it feels it just feels like a real slice of England. I mean, I know nothing about England, so I watch this and I'm like, yeah, this must be what the English countryside is like with all these weirdos. Um and the, <laughs> the colors. It's really just really, really interesting. No, I I I think you're saying you don't know if Dahl was writing about, you know, where he grew up, but that's he's every writer feels that feels imaginary space with what they know totally Uh, totally and it's it's just so interesting that that's what they they picked on like well if we're gonna fill this out and expand it why not take from here you know obviously they have all their other insane references throughout um 
that seemingly, you know, I don't know what Miami Vice, the TV series, has to do with Raul Dahl or anything like that. But it's just a, it's a it's a very sweet, kind way. And it, and it sounds like, I, I mean, also that they just had so, so much help from his estate. Like Wes Anderson was saying mm-hmm. that his uh, doll's wife, who, who handles all of it, was more like on their production team than someone they had to deal with. How, it, you know, normally if you're dealing with the rights to a piece of intellectual property, it's more of a pulling teeth or a negotiation. But she was always trying to help them from day one. I know they initially met well the, before the production of Royal Tenenbaums, so you know, essentially a decade before this film came out. And he wrote that piece in the New York Times about visiting Gypsy House in 2002, and it just sounds like it was they were both sides were so supportive and so into it. Um, yeah, I think no, I think that's really important when a writer passes away, when the it becomes in the next of kin to figure out who's gonna because it who's going to make it. Cause you can obviously remake a movie. They may remake tons of movies, but it's not like a play where you get, you know, you can keep casting it and keep redoing it. And it's not kind of in its final form. And it sounds like as well, Henry Selleck went to Lissy doll. Um, and so Rodol's second wife, Felicity, I think they called her Lissy. Um, and was like, I want to make James and the giant peach. and I want to do a stop motion movie. And she was like, why? And he was like, um, because it was the only book that ever gave me hope as a kid. And then she was like, bingo, bingo. (laughs) (laughs) And then I know John Krasinski had the same situation with David Foster Wallace's agent, not his, his wife, but being like, look, I just want to get his words into the mouths of actors. It it was uh, brief interviews with hideous men. And then they were like, yeah, it's like, they totally, I think it was very clear that, that Wes Anderson had like the best intentions and had yet carried around a first edition of fantastic Mr. Fox since he was like a young boy, all the way to college, all the way to like an adult. And I think it sounds like that. um, It was just, they got from the beginning that he, this was somebody who was going to pay homage to, to the legacy that's now been tarnished by his words, but um, (laughs) of Rodol and, and the source material and the way he makes it his own and expands it and puts his own like fingerprint on it. I feel like it's just, is so fun that even if you're like, okay, like you're saying, it's not, what does Miami vice have to do with, you know, road doll, but it's more like, this is, this is, there's no, this is objectively fun and awesome. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, as we, in a previous episode, like we talked about the Coen brothers, there are so many things now reading fantastic Mr. Fox, the book, after having seen the movie several times, I'm I'm like, okay, I don't know what, this is great. I don't know why I was expecting like, you know, the animals to say cuss or whatever, but there are, <laughs> there are so many things that are in both that, you know, it, it does feel like a good fit because Wes Anderson obviously loved doll and was already influenced by him. So there's so many things that I had considered, Wes Anderson attributes that were from Dahl or vice versa, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, just a perfect pairing. I also think it's interesting, speaking of this movie as kind of a breakthrough in certain ways for Wes Anderson, it's also his first, and I guess only technically, adaptation. I know Grand Budapest Hotel has that strange credit where it's, like, inspired by the writing of Stefan Zweig, um, even though it's there's no book it's based on. But it's just Well, there's a book. Oh, real quick. Sorry to cut you off because I've been meaning to tell you this. I came across a Stefan Zweig book at a bookstore that was called The Society of the Cross Keys. 
No, totally. And I think it's like it's like he just took from all of his books. I know my roommate has like his collected work Zwigs and it's just like it's all just pulled from random stuff from there. And that's a movie that has even more outside influences than this one that I can point to like various mm-hmm. movies and other books or history. Um but it's just like yeah, it so many of his movies are full of influences and references whether it's like I don't know, The Glass Family with the Royal Tenenbaums or mm-hmm. uh Jacques Cousteau, but it's it's cool that this is the first one that was a literal adaptation of something. Yeah. Well, I think well maybe we can get into more specific moments, but I think I'm in complete agreement and like I I just the the level of attention to detail there's a couple of things I want to bring up real quick cuz I've seen this movie about 50 800 times we should also do you want to talk about your daughter's love for this movie yeah sure sure so um (laughs) so it's all started when i went to palm springs with uh my father-in-law and his uh girlfriend and then my wife and uh daughter florence and Corey, my wife was studying for her structural engineering a structural engineering exam so she got up and she was going off to study um, Corey's dad was running on a treadmill and Corey's, uh, and then Sherry, who's, um, Corey, my father-in-law's, uh, girlfriend was still sleeping and I really had to shit. And I was like, Oh God, if I shit, then Florence is going to be running into the next room and like waking up Sherry. So I just like frantically brought her in the bathroom, which you do have to do when you're alone with a kid, you just have to, they have to like, have to watch me at least just crack some pipes. And then, uh, so I just pull, I was just like panicking. I pull up, uh, I have, I have, I own this movie. It's on my Apple TV. I bought it on iTunes like years and years ago. And I just start playing it and I just hold it up to her. Really, it was not kind of cool because we we're also like really trying not to give her screens. But I was like, I, this is, I'm just doing this. And she loved it. Like from the beginning, she just hooked on it probably because it was like dopamine firing with having a, a screen. <laughs> but, um, it became our kind of little secret for like a couple months when it was just the two of us. So my, my wife's a runner and it shows <laughs> <just> something <laughs> Michael's Michael says in the office about his fantasy where when Pam's about to slap him and my wife's a runner and it shows, but my wife is a runner and it does show. And um, she runs a lot on the weekends and I'm alone with Florence and she goes, and when it was just the two of us, as soon as Corey was gone, Florence would go boxes. <laughs> and then I would throw Fox's Fantastic Mr. Fox on the TV and we'd watch it while I was like cooking her breakfast and it was kind of our thing and she just loves it. The thing that's troubling though, her favorite characters are Bogus Bunts and Bean. She <laughs> loves them. Well, and so, Matt, they're humans. They're human, but I think it's because of the song. The music in this is incredible as well. The sound, the original soundtrack mixed oh, it's with- it's so good. It's just incredible. And then that for me, the whole- I have a quick point to make and then I'm kind of all over the place, but it is funny. So the whole brilliance of the book, I think can be signed, uh, summarized with Bogus Bunsen Bean, one fat, one short, one lean, these horrible crooks. So different in looks were nonetheless equally mean. Just like when you're a kid, it's just like, okay, you're, you're hooked. <laughs> and Florence just loves it. And she just always goes Bogus Bunsen Bean, Bogus Bunsen Bean to me. And then I have to take, I have to open the book and show her pictures. She's like, I want to see Bogus Bunsen Bean. And I have to like show her pictures of these three deranged farmers. I do think the one note I'm going to, it's kind of funny that it's like, they were nonetheless equally mean. It's like Bean is the meanest. He's just clearly the meanest. It. Yeah. They make a point in the book and movie. to be Especially like, this guy. the movie. Yeah. So it is kind of funny that that's like the premise of the whole thing. But um, what was I going to say? So yeah, that's kind of 
So Florence loves, just loves this. So I've watched it over and over and over again. And there's so many little things you pick up on these attention to detail. That's why Wes Anderson, if you're a cinema lover, is just so good to rewatch because this, each shot is a painting, you know, and you just, you kind of are able to hone in on other stuff and you just pick up on things. And like, again, similar to the Cormac McCarthy episode where I was like him saying two or three times, um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character saying that kind of opened it up. And I was like, I, this is, I'm really into this. It's like you look, so the whack bat scene where um, we're learning the rules of whack bat and Owen Wilson is what animal is he? What is that animal? I actually don't remember. It might be the silvery marmoset because if you look at the trophy, it's like FF Fox has won like all of them, but then there's this like silvery marmoset. Like, and I think it might be what that might be Owen Wilson's character, but you look at his top, his name tag, it says coach. And then in quotes, skip <laughs> like in quotes. And that's like, so Wes Anderson to be like, I love that so much. Yeah. Like punk, punctuating it. Like every other person would be like, skip. He puts it in quotes. Cause he knows it's like a nickname and he's like literary in that way. Okay, real quick, I just got word from our research department. So, Coach Skip is an albino river otter with white fur, <laughs> light red eyes, and a round gray nose. Okay, perfect. So, it's not silvery marmoset, so, but we, we do know. Thank you, research department. So, um, yeah, there's, there's that level of attention to detail. Another thing as well is that Wes Anderson sent videos of himself reacting, doing all the different characters to for every single character at different times throughout it and send it to the animators to use as like their foundation for animating other than bill murray as the wolf um and that's like that's the level of detail that this person is working with and whether you might hate the film you might hate the the person making you do it or doing it but you you god damn it you gotta respect it that is crazy <laughs> i it's yeah like, that's a good point because also uh uh, just furthering how this movie really opened things up for him. From what I understand now for all of his live action movies, what he does is he makes like animatic storyboards. So essentially I don't think it's with stop motion always, but like he will have the whole movie shot with like rudimentary a animation of what every character is going to do. And I don't think he did that before this movie. So basically mm -hmm. there's like a version of Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest Hotel that's done, just animated before they ever shoot anything. That's yeah, that's incredible. So um, cool. And he's like, he's his own genre. And I think you can critique it. Um, some movies I think work way better than others, but yeah, you just goddamn it. You got to respect it. Like, also, uh, I want to say with the and Anchorman. <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying? Dorothy Mantooth is a saint. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, and this one really just provides like so much room for his little jokes, since they have you know. I he said this in the commentary too, where it's not only do you have to make everything, but you get to make every single part of every single shot. You know, you're not just picking up a prop, so that gives you ample opportunity to make things as funny or entertaining or strange as possible, mm -hmm. which is already what he does. But just jokes in every frame. And I was just thinking of the first uh, the whack bat scene. Hold on, what is it? I wrote it down here. How the the scoreboard instead of home and away it says home and stray, and I yeah. was just like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> no, it's so it's so good. Home and stray, and then if you notice, there's a little rabbit changing the score, and like this is the thing in in regular in a regular movie, 
Um, if you have that, that's what that does is no more effort, really. You have to be of a keen attention to detail that you have continuity, but it's not hard to do. And a stop motion movie that requires, there's like a whole, there's like 18 meetings about this rabbit and it's going to take 20 hours to film. Um, and it's a, a part of it. It's like, it's like a, it's a, it's a production problem that needs to be solved. And he's like the guy who was like, well, I, but I want it though. So do it. So do it. Yeah. which is why the animators hate me. And it's, uh, and speaking of, uh, like, I know we had mentioned the kind of grand, exciting, adventurous, uh, life of, of doll in, you know, the 20th century in a different way. This is just such an example of Wes Anderson, even outside of how, much you and I and others may like his work leading this life of just like just the ideal artist life it seems like I remember a couple years ago a photo went viral of his um his initial sketch of the whack bat scene that he wrote down on like hotel stationery I don't remember what hotel it was probably somewhere in like fucking Paris or something probably not Paris because he probably has a home in Paris but some European hotel where he just doodled it down and then on the commentary he was saying it was something that was added super late in the process the whole scene and idea of it and that he initially doodled it on hotel stationery and just being a writer abroad and like jotting things down on the closest pen and paper of some illustrious hotel really it's kind of the dream <laughs> yeah that uh god just funny because it's like it reminds me of that. It's so random, but for I'm going to make this connection. There's a great um, Kendrick Lamar freestyle uh, on Hot 97, I think in like 2013, but he's like, you might think this is the realest shit I've ever wrote, but to me, it's a throwaway. Like he's just using, it's like such a sick freestyle and he just doesn't, it's not for anything, it's not for any of his albums, just for like, just to fuck around. And I'm like, yeah, it's like, like Wes Anderson, this might like, <laughs> whack bat is like the whole thing is amazing he probably thought of it in half an hour on in there <laughs> and then made all these animators do it and it's just it's you might think it's a throwaway or uh or you might think it's the, the greatest shit he ever wrote but to him it's a throwaway and it's an amazing throwaway love it so what do you what how should we dive into this as well it's so much to I could talk in any single direction. What's a good focus for, for us? I mean, it's interesting. What do you think about this? How just, you know, obviously the book ends at some point. And I know in this commentary, Anderson was saying how their goal was always to like have, you know, the movie go through where the book ends and expand from there in ways they think Dahl might've done it. And I think he even says like, obviously this was nowhere as good as that. But uh, I mean, do, to you, does it feel like in keeping with the rest of the story? the way the movie finishes and beyond after, you know, they survive. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so the, the book finishes with them living underground, but do they get, let me check. Do they get to the, do they get to the grocery store? I don't remember. No, no. But apparently that ending is from Dahl's original ending. Again, I'm no doll expert and I'm just pulling from this damn commentary. I keep citing, but uh, Anderson said like they, they had, they in his like archives, they had an original ending he had written where they end up in the supermarket. Well, yeah, it's, I think in the book, it's kind of like, yeah. So I just checked. I was pretty sure. Yeah. They're still waiting. The farmers are still waiting above that hole. And, I think the ending is great. I think it's like, oh, it's, so it's, it's tough because I don't know if it's fully dull because there's less of like the witch. Have you seen, have you seen or read the witches? I have, I've, I've seen both movies. Haven't read it. 
okay, what well, ends with him as a mouse, right? Right, right. And that's pretty fucked up. And every other writer on the planet would have him find some magical potion that turns him back into a human. And um, Dahl is like, nope, you're a fucking mouse. <laughs> you're the, you're, the rest of your life, Chris Rock is a mouse in the 2019 version with Anne Hathaway. But the point, I think Dahl is like, well, it makes it makes sense to me that it was a previous version that they're all happy in this thing. But the reality is that Mr. Fox and everyone, they're living underground. But I think the ending really still works because, again, they found their own rhythm. They have this amazing music. They have um, the toast he gives. It all just really, they're having another kid. And then, like, the being like, I think we're both glowing. And then their eyes. Oh, are my like, God. Then the dances. I think it's him making it his own. Um, and I don't think it's like fully in keeping with doll, but I don't think it matters. I think it's like, it's, it's another example of him making it his own. And it's like the book's the book, the movie's the movie and kind of our, we love as pod as in this podcast to be like, which one, how does it work? How does it not work? And what do we ultimately think is the better of the two? And it's tough to make a judgment call, which is the better of the two, because the book is meant for really little kids. Um, kids that, that age reading it can't deal with, not can't deal. Um, maybe they can, but it's complexity. Every character kind of has to be at one note and the plot needs to just go from A to B. And in a film, um, this is for a little bit older of a crowd, still for kids, but also adults kind of that cornering both that Venn diagram there. And I feel like it's like, it's, it, it brings it full circle where it's like, Hey, we're still living underground, but like, we have a reason to dance, you know? Right, right, right. Totally. And I, I think maybe this is something that will come up again and again, but it often feels like somehow the adaptations that end up being not just the most successful, but the like pay the most respect to what they're adapting are the ones that still manage to be most in the voice of the filmmaker, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is certainly one of those where it is so the book, but in making it his own that was kind of the strongest adaptation that could have been. Um, mm -hmm. No, I agree. I mean, it kind of harkens back to our conversation about no country for old men where it's like, it kind of, I do think the book, the movie renders the book almost irrelevant because it's so it's bringing it such to life. And the, the only people who really need to read no country for old men are people who love, love the movie. Cause it's kind of ex getting to extend your thoughts about it, but it's like, to me, it's like it, it, I don't know if it makes it almost irrelevant, but it, it like, I know I will, I'm going to, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that if you're, I'm, I think, it, and this is like, it's just, it's, it's its own thing. You know, it's like it, it's, oh, it's a Wes Anderson film and it's a road doll book and enjoy both because they're great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, r real quick, I want to, I want to just rattle off some random, just hilariously Wes Anderson things about this movie. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox wears a corduroy suit. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Just like Wes Anderson. Looks uh, similar to Tanner Kundrat. Tanner Kundrat may have worn a corduroy suit to Matt's wedding one week ago. It's true. Pretty, <laughs> yeah, sw pretty I, sweltering. Thank you. Yeah, did you get hot? I was pretty hot in my suit. I was pretty hot. I was pretty hot. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, I thought this was really interesting. It's It's so smart. And he doesn't mention this in the commentary or anything, but obviously it's set in England, we can assume, because of the humans and Doll and the original book. But that all of the animals 
are American by accent, at least. And maybe mm-hmm. that's just a product of, you know, his kind of the, the repertory company of Wes Anderson, like the people he always works with. Like, obviously, he works with a lot of, you know, people from all over the globe, but a lot of these guys, and then plus George Clooney, are American. But that divide of all the humans being English and all the animals being American is so interesting. And also just it kind of fits in with Wes Anderson. You know, I mean, this guy's from Houston. And sure, he, he grew up, you know, in a, a cultured family and, you know, but he's a guy from Houston who, you know, then lived in New York and I think still has a place in New York. But like we've talked about, says that he for like the past decade has not spent more than half a year in America. You know, he's essentially European. <laughs> and it, it, it's an He's an expat, exactly. I mean, this I found like genuinely kind of annoying and hilarious. At one point in the commentary, he's uh, saying that they use a piece of music, of uh, Georges Delarue music, the uh, French New Wave composer from Truffaut's Two English Girls. And Wes Anderson says, uh, from the Truffaut film, uh, Two English Girls, I believe it's called in America. It's like, Dog, <laughs> you're from America. <laughs> French is not your first language, although maybe it seems like it now. And I was just like, man. Um, but I, I do think that's such an interesting representation of that. Or maybe it's just a way to separate the men from, you know, the, the beasts. Um, the men from the boys. Because <laughs> um, also in in the commentary, he mentions that, like, they were never really able to determine where what the reality was, where it's like, do the farmers see that this fox is wearing a corduroy suit or that they're all wearing <laughs> clothes? And, do, like, you know, the animals speak English can the people hear them? And I think Wes Anderson says something to the effect of, yeah, we never really figured that out. But, like, it doesn't matter, and it's so interesting. And it's also, I think it's so shocking in the movie anytime you see how how big, or rather how small the animals are Mm -hmm. relative to human scale. You know, not even when they're around a human, but, like, when he's hiding behind all the bottles, you're like, he's the size of a cider bottle? I was thinking of Mr. Fox as, like, the size of a person this whole time because that's what you're kind of used to in in animated movies with anthropomorphic animals. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's I think that actually ties back to something with Doll. Doll's like had all the sympathy for children that we that we discussed already, but he said like if you want to know what it's like to be a kid, walk around on your knees for a year. <laughs> that's and, great. And I think it's like yeah, you see you see that with the the animals in relation to the farmers, but the thing the whole movie for me is like in this in the same way that um there's so many things and it's just an easy way to frame it but like kind of saying one fat one short one lean the whole the whole thing for the book the whole thing for me in the movie i just think it's like it feels like it's wes anderson in a nutshell like borrowing from the caper genre but it just making it his own there's that great shot that keeps getting closer and closer on mr fox as he's saying stuff he's like your tractor has destroyed my tree your gunman uh, kidnapped my nephew your rat insulted my wife and you shot off my tail. And it's like, he's like, I'm not leaving without that necktie. And then they just, <laughs> they just try to kill him. And then he just, they, they dodge the bullets and he looks at him and goes, actually, we should just go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I just feel like there's this undercurrent of silliness and whimsy throughout that pervading through all of his works. That is why I, these, you know, my favorite where it's like you, it's yeah. it's like, as you like to say, hermetically sealed. It's a storybook world. And all of a sudden, though, there are real emotions, but then there's, like, big laughs. Right. They're always undercut with, like, the funniest line possible. But, they, yeah, yeah, the emotions are so real. I mean, 
every scene with mrs fox which like shouldn't be as good as it is the beautiful one in front of the falling water oh my god Mm -hmm. or i mean for me the the lone wolf scene is so good at the end and Mm -hmm. i don't know why but that just like it makes me cry every time it's so good well the thing about that this that is very i do think is very dull as well because um so the thing i love about the bfg is so there's um there's this moment so the bfg have you read it or seen the bfg i've only seen i probably read it as a kid i've only seen the spielberg movie okay so the the bfg has uh i think it's maybe wondrous is the word but it's in uh it says his ears they have a whole chapter in the book about his ears because he can he has amazing hearing because he's huge ears and he says he says and it's maybe my favorite part of the book. He says that sometimes on a really quiet night, he can hear music coming from distant planets. Beautiful. And it's beautiful. And it, like, what a better way to introduce the idea of life afterlife or, or, or um, aliens or something by with music, being able to hear music coming from different planets. Like that's such a beautiful haunting idea. And then I think in the book, it's like, you're like, Oh, and Sophie's like, she has chills when she hears it and is kind of scared. And I feel like that is a similar function to the wolf because the wolf is, is this existential thread. They have this fear of it. Kylie, the opossum, who's maybe my favorite Wes Anderson character of all time is like, keeps going with this wolf I saw. And then, and, and George Clooney or Mr. It's funny every single time. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, what's with all the wolf talk. But then they, they see him and he's like, they're brothers in arms. But to me, it felt like he was like, it was like, the way that we as humans want to be God, like it's like the fox wants to be the wolf. That's the ultimate signifier of for us in humans. I feel like it's like we want to control our destiny and uh, being an omniscient being is is the biggest example of that. That's why so many there's so many spiritual texts that deal with that. And this fox is like his ultimate goal, as we hear, is to be as wild as possible. But he has this responsibility now. And the wolf to him is like, this is pure animal craziness is basically how he says about Ash, you know, when he does the, he says hot boxing, does all that stuff. It's like the wolf is this ultimate signifier of pure animal craziness that you can't tame. You can never tame it, even if you tried. And that's what excites um, Mr. Fox and ultimately scares him, but then moves him to tears to come into contact with it. It's so interesting because it is, it's, yeah, it's this thing. He's always talking about how you can't control the animal within himself and how he needs to be that. And a fox always has, has a chicken in his mouth. Otherwise, what's the point? But it's so interesting that it's, it's a joke that that's his great, he's afraid of wolves. But then you don't realize, you know, you're around all these animals who are like people who are, you know, lawyers and real estate agents and supers, <laughs> which is so funny. But then you don't even conceptualize that there can be animals in this world who are animals until mm-hmm. he sees that wolf. And it's so striking and kind of upsetting in a really great, beautiful way. I, <laughs> I just got a flash too. Of, I guess this was voiced by Mario Batali, who got, I think it was Me too and oh, yeah. maybe Terrible Person. But when he is, if you heard, you know, when they're doing the big feast in the in the Flint mine, uh-huh. um, he's like, "Where are the apples? Where are the apples?" He's like cutting up. They're like, "They're right here." We'll oh, get them in the pan. Like, there's, <laughs> there's, there's so many little jokes that uh, the three that come to mind. That being one, 
also when the squirrels are moving in the them into the house it's so funny the squirrels like don't uh, don't try to be superman here just you know we want to get two percent more <laughs> in like the filler space and the dialogue is so funny to me and then the other one is when they meet kylie the first time and kylie's like spacing out and wes anderson's actually playing the weasel and he's like look at look you see him look at this look at this kylie like there's like there's such a funny irreverent like do you know what i'm talking about like, oh yeah exactly moments. no it, it's so true and these these just little lines and i don't know they're just so great at these jokes about the details of life and often city life just with all the real estate stuff and the uh uh, the, the also the spiral eyes of Kylie is such a weird joke that's so funny and strange repeated throughout that I'm not even <laughs> sure I even get, but it's so funny and weird every I, time. I think it's playing uh, on a possum like defense mechanism, like playing dead oh, or something. Duh, duh, but duh. then Mr. Fox does it too, where he's right, like, where right, he's like, right. and he gives a signal, and then the God, there's just so many. Another part I really like that really cracks me up is when. They're like, do you have a the where Kylie hands him up the card and he goes, Titanium card. How the custody qualify for this? <laughs> I always pay my bills on time. <laughs> yeah. There's uh here, here's one critique because it's like I hard it's it's really hard for me to critique this movie because I just think it's so amazing. And I think it's all it just it just every scene makes me smile and brings joy to my life and makes me want to keep it going. Um tell me what you think of this. So uh here's my one maybe critique of it is that um, Ash is so funny and J- I, Jason Schwartzman's the voice performance is great. And the whole time where it's like, and I just love this part too, where Mrs. Fox is like, basically like, it's okay to be different. And he's like, no, thanks. I prefer to be an athlete. Like, it's so good. Cause no kids, like, it's so patronizing to be like, it's not a big deal that you're not a good athlete when you're a kid, a boy, for example. At oh a certain yeah. Time, it's I relate everything. to Ash hugely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I do too. Like I was athletic growing up, but my brother was like, I was living in my brother's shadow. Luckily for me, I played soccer and he played other sports, but my brother was like the best in his grade and at literally everything he did. And then he would just show up and just like run a train on me and my friends. And then it was like, uh, but I kind of think, and this is goofy because it's a kid's movie, but when Ash at the end of the day does the animal craziness and saves him, does all that stuff. I wonder if it would have been more effective or not because he says he prefers to be an athlete and like, but like minutes earlier, he's unable to do the karate thing. He gets it done because he knocks accidentally knocks the apple crate off, but then he has this wild animal craziness moment when maybe the one who's actually capable of doing that they've been characterizing the entire way is Christofferson. If he like ultimately was the one who had that moment and Ash was like, um, maybe gives it up to him or something like he accepts maybe, that he's not that guy yeah. yeah or maybe doesn't even accept it he can still have a laugh like he can still kind of be taking pop shots in the motorcycle where he's like oh you know it's pretty good but uh <laughs> you know i think you could have like or whatever i don't know is is that a fair criticism what do you think no i think so i mean i think it works but it is the kind of thing where is it like is it too easy to just give ash that victory like that i don't know yeah i, I know I, what you mean it is a fantasy story and i guess it's like it isn't. It's funny that I'm finding that far fetched. <laughs> like Ash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is like a kid's story with a happy ending, but also the happy ending. They're still living underground, you know. Yeah. Kind of like a sewer, essentially. They are, um, but at least the apples have stars on them. It's 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 so funny that moment because it's almost like he's looking at the movie, you know, <laughs> like 
as though the movie's already been designed and Mr. Fox knows he's in a movie and is saying, but hey, I mean, look how great everything here looks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hate Florence. Uh, you have to pee in the potty, Florence? That's amazing. A great cameo um, by the biggest Mr. Fox fan. Yeah. Um, one other okay. thing. <laughs> okay, sorry, continue. No, 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 I was just going to say, I know I'm probably pulling from this commentary too much, but since you said Kylie was your favorite character, apparently based on uh, the super of the building that Wes Anderson bought in New York, mm-hmm. that he was just this weirdo super who continued to live in the building without Wes Anderson knowing it for many months. Which yeah, He didn't give uh... any other details, <laughs> but I thought that was so funny. Well, no, did you hear about... Um... I think it's the same guy. No, it wasn't. I never mind the the Bill the Bill Ubell thing. You no, no, no. What is this? Um, so you know the Bond Company Stooge in the Life Aquatic. Yes. Um. So apparently they had like, I forget what the guy did. Let's just he was some sort of contractor. Um, his name was like Bob Ubell or something, and that he and Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach were hanging out all the time, and. Uh, Noah Baumbach casually mentioned he was like oh I'm having Bob Ubell come over and fix this thing for me and Wes Anderson like lights up and is like I have Bob Ubell as my guy too like, they, like, <laughs> didn't realize they were using the same guy to do, fix something in their apartment <laughs> um, and that was the inspiration of the Bond Company Stooge was, the, was, was naming after this guy that they shared and I didn't know if it was the guy who Kylie was inspired off of but I don't think it is I think it's you're right the super who like was still living in Wes Anderson's apartment <laughs> that is just a great way to come up with things like that there were there were several things I think I mentioned here. I don't know what a bridal path is outside of it, but b- having been in New York recently, that's like one of the paths around the reservoir in Central Park that you can run on. It's like this very like <laughs> all everything about Central Park is like very Wes Anderson, too detailed and confusing. But it's like there around the reservoir, there's a, a running path which you have to go one way on. Then there's a second path called the bridal path, and you can go either direction in. And then there's like a third larger path around the reservoir to run on. But I had never heard the phrase bridal path outside of New York. So then in the movie, where they're like, he's going down the bridal path, and I'm like, is that just <laughs> a thing where they're, they're New Yorkers? And they're like, this is called the bridal path. It's probably a term I'm just not aware of, but I'm not aware of it either. I know it's at the beginning though. I actually screened this film um, to my students when I was teaching a creative writing thing about how to introduce characters and a strategy I gave them was um, introducing an action. So I was like, Mr. Fox is in action. He's on a date with his wife. What, what do we learn about him because he's in action? And you really learn so much. You learn that he's like incredibly confident that he's really, uh, sly and uh, mischievous but he also like is stubborn and doesn't listen to people and basically that entire scene is like a blueprint for the whole movie and it's really it's really really effective and then he's like talking about yeah which should we should we take the bridal path or whatever and then he picks the bridal path and then later he's like well you gave me the bridal path so we can take your 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 suggestion <laughs> Um, so I, we're coming up probably on time here soon, but I feel like, as you mentioned, this is Wes Anderson's only adaptation, although we could maybe do a Grand Budapest Hotel episode, should we read the entire collected works of <laughs> Stefan Zweig. Zweig, but let's get some Wes Anderson stuff out there, um, for, for mostly for me, but for the people who are, who are big, where does this, where does this rank in terms of, okay, two big questions for you. So where does Wes rank in terms of your favorite filmmakers? Where does this film rank for you in terms of his filmography? Two great questions. Um, I mean, God, I, I love him to death. And it's the kind of thing where I, 
there are certain criticisms that people have or if, if he's not for certain people or if they're sick of like how similar his movies are to one another it's like fine but god forbid we have someone with a unique artistic sensibility who's making <laughs> movies with tons of movie stars this day and age and i just find most of the critiques lobbed against him to be just totally annoying even some of them are funny but like the parody videos kind of drive me crazy i think the snl ones are good but you see them all the time people will send me like tiktok ones or whatever and it's like sorry no you this isn't <laughs> you yeah. think you can do this so easily i always think of the line in the social network where uh it's so dumb but it, what he says if you were the inventors of facebook you'd have invented facebook and yeah. it's like <laughs> no it's not that easy to pretend to be wes anderson just because it's vaguely quirky like this is just next level stuff but um no, he's he's huge for me, and it, it, in a certain way where sometimes it is more impressive than it is in love with. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think you know, even with him and Baumbach, Noah Baumbach's work means more to me on a personal level, and he's certainly, a, you know, I, uh, he's become more and more of an accomplished technical filmmaker, but it's still not in the same realm as Wes Anderson. And their, their films are totally different, even though they clearly mm-hmm. have similar sensibilities. But no, he, I love him so much, and it, for me... I think of his movies kind of in in tiers where I would probably I used to th- I I would say either Rushmore or Grand Budapest Hotel are my favorites. That's like top probably couldn't choose between them if I had to maybe Rushmore just and it, it's great cuz they come at opposite ends of his filmography, you know. Those are the top and then I would put probably Moonrise Kingdom, Fantastic Mr. Fox. <sighs> second and then it would be Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic probably but those four all could be you know interchanged they're all so great it probably what's it what's your second tier again so it's it's Life Life Aquatic (laughs) uh no say no those are that's the third tier what was the second and third tier first tier is Rushmore and Grand Budapest Hotel second would be Fantastic Mr. Fox this film and uh Moonrise Kingdom Mm -hmm. and then uh then I think it would be Life Aquatic, Royal Tenenbaums. But it's also the kind of thing where it's like, if I watched either of those movies or any of those movies right afterwards, I'd probably be like, yeah, that that could be the best one. Or that could be my favorite. <laughs> you know, whichever I watched most recently. Um, mo- real quick, a quick aside, since it's not an adaptation. Moonrise Kingdom, which is the first movie I saw after being into Wes Anderson. Like, first movie, new release, mm-hmm. you know, since this movie kind of got me started on that. Uh, I was at a family reunion. I lived in Phoenix, but I was at a family reunion in the Inland Empire in Yucaipa, California. Terrible wow. place. Um, and I was with my sister, and we had like a dead night. And I asked my mom if I could take the car into town to see a movie. Uh, and but in reality, I wanted to drive like 150 miles to see Moon the opening weekend of Moonrise Kingdom at the ArcLight in Hollywood. Rest in peace, because it was only playing on two screens in the country: one in the ArcLight and one in New York. And my sister and I drove, terrified, not knowing anything about L.A. or Hollywood, paid like $20 to park, even though now I know there's easy street parking and a lot for the Arclight, and uh, and saw the movie opening night. It was great. Drove back. My stepdad, who was a f- just a freak genius about these kind of things, clocked the difference in the odometer, knew exactly what the odometer had been at, and told us that he knew we drove way too far to have just gone into town. And I said, nah, we just like drove around because we kind of got lost. 
but then uh, my sister it turns out had used my mom's debit card to pay for our parking so then <laughs> like a week later after we got home i was in college at the time and lived alone so i didn't care but my sister was still in high school that my mom and stepdad found out we lied and my sister got super grounded and nothing happened to me um so anyway that, that was that was my other big wes anderson story that is <laughs> awesome that shows your commitment to the to the to the game here so so I mean, so yeah i know it was it was i was scared too and in hindsight like i don't know i'm not afraid of sunset and vine but as like a, a 20 year old or however old i was i was pretty scared um but yeah, no no okay so i mean i know wes anderson is near or if not your favorite filmmaker right mm-hmm. yeah i was wondering when this was going to come back around to me no, okay i do all the talking <laughs> you actually have the good points and keep us organized and you head up our research department. Um, so Wes Anderson for me, it's t- it's I had I came to him um, right around 2015. It's funny because that's when I wrote and um, I when I first wrote uh, Ghosted, the feature film I made in 2018 that came out. But I wrote it in 2015, then I shot it in 2016, and then I released it. Um, didn't get released on Amazon until like January 2018. But I discovered it was interesting because my 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 pinpoint into film was always like slapstick comedies, like I was all about like Will Ferrell and um, like Judd Apatow movies and like Ben Stiller and and um, Adam Sandler movies and that was kind of like I was much more in the comedy camp than the film camp in terms of like what I was trying to do, and then right around 2015 I kind of had this moment where I started my I stopped smoking weed and had become sober and much more like interested in like positivity and like I feel like I started I came to so many different more movies and then that's like I watched I watched The Life Aquatic I had seen it years earlier because a guy Juan who actually was talking to you about the other day this Paraguayan teammate I had loved The Life Aquatic and I watched I forgot that this was your origin story I remember this yeah go on he loved the life aquatic and watched it with me in like 2010 before preseason for, for soccer. And I really liked it. And I, I thought it was weird and fun. And I loved the, I've always been pretty um, taken with the sea, you know, like sea turtles, my favorite animal. And I've always, I liked Jacques Cousteau and I read books about him. and I didn't, it wasn't like a lightning rod moment, but I remember cause I was all about sports then, but I was like, this is cool. And then it came, I was like, Oh my God, I've seen this movie before. And I watched it, like fell in love with it got obsessed with Wes Anderson, watched all of his movies in like a week at the same time. And this very similar experience. And that brought me to actually the algorithm on iTunes suggested the squid and the whale because Wes Anderson was a producer on that. And apparently he really alienated Noah Baumbach with Isabella Rossellini uh, with the blue velvet scene. Do you Did you hear this in the interview? No, he, he, what he, he, so the they're all at dinner, right? And Wes or Noah Baumbach had just shot um, Squid and the Whale, and they were trying to clear the topless scene in um, Blue Velvet, I uh-huh. think. Yes, and, no, it's Blue Velvet. Yeah, and Isabella Rossellini happened to be at their table, and Wes Anderson said, Noah just finished making a wonderful film, and they were actually trying to clear a scene. And then she goes, oh, what? She got really interested and was like, what scene? And, like, Noah had a really – like got a ton of flop sweat or something it was like uh and then like explained it and she was like totally cool about it but he was like mortified that Wes had done it and then Wes was like I was just trying to be a producer like I thought that's what you do like you know what I mean but then she put them in contact with the right people and it did get cleared 
And, but on the walk home, I guess Wes apologized. And then when Noah accepted, he said, do you want to write, do you want to co-write Fantastic Mr. Fox with me? That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I discovered both filmmakers pretty much simultaneously. And then I really got into them. And I feel like it's funny because if you watch my film, I don't know if you need to, but if you, if you wanted to, the film on uh, Ghosted, you can really, you can actually kind of see this departure of me trying to do something very traditionally slapstick and like being where characters are funny and being funny. And then the cinematography isn't as big a deal. And um, then you can see it get more um, like, it seems like it was like, I, I feel like I transit this. I'm not saying either thing are true, but the ideals in, I had in my head, I think I, throughout the course of the film, I translated or, or be, went from comedian to filmmaker in terms of like my ideals does that make are, sense? wait are you saying I, I didn't realize this are you saying you during shooting this is when this happened to you basically or like yeah wow i didn't realize that was the timeline that's so cool yeah oh thank you um yeah i because i was really trying to do something funny and relevant and contemporary being like ghosted dating and then slowly i i it turned into something different where i feel like it's less clever and less like viral and ultimately why i didn't do as well but like i do think still but better yeah um but i don't know it's been it's funny every time i check i don't know it's i don't know if the amazon algorithm is just onto me but i had a lot of people write reviews who liked it and my friends was like oh could you write a review and then but everyone who's like a verified purchase on amazon just like trashes it <laughs> so it's like uh so um, i have like mostly positive reviews but right now i'm hovering at like a 2.2 and it's so funny to me because quickly the, my narcissism but also in relation to wes and noah is in this interview I listened to, they were both talking about it. So Squid and the Whale, or, or Kicking and Screaming, rather, and Bottle Rocket got, like, trashed, right? Uh-huh. No one, like, no one really liked it, but people, like, like, but, like, people did ultimately like the it. Right like the right people first, did, right. Yeah, the right people did, so they're able to have careers. I remember having this thought, right? When I first came out with Ghosted, friends and family were the only ones who had seen it, and I was getting, like, tons of praise because it's, like, it, the film was a big accomplishment for me, but also what are my friends going to say? You know, what are people going to say? They ha- kind of have to, except for my brother who still trashes it to this day. Um, Does he really? Yeah. Trashes it relentlessly. But um, uh, I remember having this thought, this is so crazy and I'm so embarrassed, but I did have this, I didn't say this to anyone, but I did think it where I was like, well, Wes and Noah, like they, like their films got like trashed and like, they had to like kind of pick themselves up. Like mine's actually doing good. So like, yeah. what is, that? <laughs> what is <laughs> like, it? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like I mean, it's, it's true. Insane. How could you not? It, no, how could you not create that narrative for yourself? And it's I know, true. but it's so often the case. Ironically, though, it did get like it get. It, I had the first wave was bad. oh was sure, good. I see what you're and saying. And then the next wave was true. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't trust people making purchases on Amazon though. Those people, anyone who writes reviews, they're just out for blood anyway. You know. Well, the thing about it that's actually flattering, and we don't get have to get caught too much on Ghosted, was that people thought it was a full studio movie, and it ends abruptly. It's only 55 minutes long. I financed the whole film with a couple of thousand dollars. I didn't pay a single actor. I didn't pay a single location apart from Racquetball Court, which was like 100 bucks. And um, people thought it was like, they were like, basically like, I can't believe a studio produced this. I'm like, this was me and only people <laughs> I knew personally. That is, that is a compliment. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Wes is a big guy for me. I kind of get hits um, for my tiers of films are Life Aquatic and Fantastic Mr. Fox and that first tier. The tattoo second, tier. 
my 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 second tier is Moonrise Kingdom as well, with um, I think Bottle Rocket and um, Bottle Rocket and Tenenbaums. Tenenbaums. Not to put ideas. Tenenbaums. I didn't feel was something. I've reappri- I did not like Rushmore at first, and I've reapprised it. And I think it's. I think it might be on that second tier. Tenenbaums. I I really actually like it and admire it, but I never felt. I think Luke Wilson's like amazing in it, and I think there's some really funny moments. But I never felt like invited into the movie. Does that make sense? Like I felt like I, I was. Yeah. Wa- I mean, it's one of my favorites, but I also I know a lot of pe- that seems to kind of be now the consensus favorite, and I kind of never felt that way. I agree, where it's very impressive and it's so funny, and there are a few mm-hmm. moments that like just devastate me, but it doesn't quite have the same as like a Rushmore, a Fantastic mm-hmm. Mr. Fox, and Moonrise Kingdom, where it's like. Yeah, this is hilarious, but I also feel like I've been totally gutted in like the best way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. kind of agree. Okay, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. And then the rest of them are like, like for example, I think I didn't really like the French Dispatch. I know you said you really liked it. This was before I had seen it. Yeah, um, I, I would like to revisit it too. That feels like one that on rewatch will probably be like, oh, this is amazing. But you also had a, a weirdly terrible viewing experience. I did that. have a weirdly terrible viewing of it. But here's, um, maybe we'll end, we should, I should probably I hop off soon because I think Florence is trying to uh, um, go to bed and I'm probably keeping her up. She's taking a, she wants to take a nap. But um, I feel like though, so I think what you said about the criticism around Wes Anderson is like, obviously I wholeheartedly agree. It's people who just don't like him and are finding reasons to try to say this is like bad objectively when it's like, you just don't like it and that's fine, but like don't shit on people who do. But I do think and Quentin Tarantino, for example, is like adamant. He's only going to make 10 films, right? Because like historically in Hollywood that like you're at the end of your career, you start making films that aren't as good. And you're like, they're just only like what you like. And I kind of felt a little bit that Dispatch was, with French Dispatch was um, a little bit that way, where it felt like it was almost like he was satirizing himself a little, where it's like the last storyline where it's like Jeffrey Wright and he's being a James Baldwin type. And it's like, okay, this is new narrative ground, then becomes about a precocious son of a police commissioner using Morse code to like save everyone. It's like, it feels like you had something different. And then you're like, wait a minute, I'm Wes Anderson. Like, here's what I actually do. And like I said, like when his, when his formula quote unquote is working, like, I think it's, it's the best. It's the one I enjoy the most, the humor, the nostalgia, the whimsy, the, um, the cinematography, the performances, the cast, the color scheme, the motifs, just everything like is like this, my, I'm having a brain's orgasm right now. And I love every moment of this, but then when, but then I also think it's like, it's like, when his formula to me isn't working as much, I'm kind of like this, this doesn't, um, I'm just not, it, 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 it doesn't do it for me, I guess. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I, I, I totally take your point there with the French dispatch. Cause I do probably think that that chapter was the best, but also specifically because of the Jeffrey Wright parts who was, Oh my God, so good. And I think is in his new one as well, which that that's an actor where you're like, how has he not been in all of these? He's so perfectly <laughs> suited, but also makes it his own thing. And I, I do agree that it with like, yeah, the Matthew Almerique and like the sun, how it kind of gets away. And you're kind of like Saoirse Ronan's here now. Who's great. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is kind of distracting. And I think the first section is probably the most in his wheelhouse in a way that fully works. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also has the, with that's the Adrian Brody and then um, yeah, Benicio del Toro and- is the painter. 
Um, mm. But it has those great bits that, again, are also in Fantastic Mr. Fox, where it's everyone holding still as though it's a still, but it's just actors holding still. They do that with the stop motion puppets in the rat fight as well. Mm. It's just which you, which my own private Idaho, I saw. Your yes, note. it's funny. Yes. I just saw that movie too. Did you I really? Seen it before? Yeah, I just saw it and I had the same thought. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, no, I had seen it before, but uh, Leanne, my girlfriend, and I went and saw a, a print of it at the Academy Museum like two weeks ago. And those scenes where they're making love and it's as mm. though it's stills, but it's just the actors posing are so striking and cool. Yeah. Um, no, that I thought that was the best part of the whole movie. I didn't think we don't want to, we could talk <laughs> about this in the time. I don't, cause that's actually an adaptation in a way of Henry the eighth. Yes. Yes. Um, I thought that movie was hard to hang with some parts of it. I loved. And I thought river Phoenix, I'm like, how's this guy? This guy's coolest a movie guy. Star. Ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was like less, uh, by the, I was like, I don't know how to tonally perceive what I'm watching. T- tune back in for my own private Idapod. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So I feel like I feel good. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything about doll other than my disappointment about his opinions about the Jewish, uh, <laughs> people, um, that I would want to shoehorn in here. I don't. I don't know if I do. I think I. I, le- I got that thing out about um, about uh, the distant planet music in Great Pole BFG, which was cool. Wes Anderson, yeah, like um, is my guy. It sounds like he's your. It sounds like he's up there for your guys as well. Certainly. Um, so also, yeah, great, feel- great shout out for Bottle Rocket. I do feel like I mean it's probably the most famously underrated one, just because it's his like first movie. Mm-hmm. But you having that high on your list, uh, just a lovely movie. It is really so good, and um, Baby Blue, the 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 feature film I was gonna make with you were gonna produce it, and then COVID hit, and then all that stuff happened. But uh, I remember I was like, I have to have the the title page. It's funny because it's Bottle Rocket. The title page is the is the full screen Bottle Rocket with like red and then writing in it, and that's how every girls episode starts, I think. Oh, and yes. I'm like, there was clearly love the girls titles. And I think there is something it's very simple and it's like still emerging West, but I'm like, he also like, I really feel like this title sequence is significant as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it does feel more pared down or like his style isn't mm-hmm. fully that fully there, but you get flashes of it. Also Dignan, probably the funniest character name ever. That character, when you watch bottle rocket, you're like, Owen Wilson's a movie star. Yeah. Like, you're like, Cause who is this guy? The the best part of that movie for me, and it's so funny because then you see, yeah, Salinger is echoing through all of Wes Anderson's work. Is actually I realized as well in the scene with Mrs. Crimmins and Timothy Chalamet, uh, his character is friendly or whatever, where he's in the bath smoking a cigarette. That's from Franny and Zoe. Uh-huh. Um, but there, um, what was I gonna say? Um, Bottle Rocket, uh, Dignan, Owen Wilson. Yeah, so Luke Wilson's talking to his sister, returning the 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 earrings that they stole because they they <laughs> practice uh they practice their burglary on their own houses but dignan takes the earrings that he wasn't supposed to so he has to give them to uh anthony luke wilson has to give them to his sister at like recess and she's like basically like i'm really worried about you and it's 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 very similar to the scene at the end of catcher in the rye when holden talks to his sister and she's like you don't like anything like you don't like anything like i you're gonna your your whole life is fucked because you're so pessimistic so his his sister grace is saying the same type of thing to luke wilson and then luke wilson's really upset by it and the next scene is reporting it to owen wilson dignan and he's like grace thinks i'm a failure 
great. Like, do you get that? She thinks I'm a failure. And then Dick Dignan goes, what did she ever do with her life that was so great? <laughs> Fucking nothing, man. And it's like she's nine years old. It's so funny. Oh, my God. Sh- shades of, I wrote a hit play. What did you do? <laughs> God, that's so It's a little one so act funny. about Watergate. Um, okay, yeah, I could, I could talk and talk and talk. And I have a feeling my family in the background is like, okay, we get it. You love these guys. Um, you gotta go you gotta go be a fantastic mr baker and support the family thank you oh quickly i do think i've tail i've been managed to keep it in check but i think for a large part of my early 20s i did have a fantastic mr fox complex that if not everyone is knocked out and dazzled by me i don't feel good about myself and i feel like i'm finally coming to terms with you can just be a a normal dude and you don't have to front load every conversation with your talents and passions you can just let people discover them if they so choose and maybe people will uh, want to talk to you. Well, listen, Matt, your talents are very discoverable, but that is, that is a great piece of psychology in this movie that uh, hits pretty hard. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if I can, uh, you know, keep that stuff in check. But Tanner, this was great. Um, let's touch base about audio quality. I think I, I did hear the thump start to dissipate. Okay, okay. The end of the thump. <laughs>